This is The Scoop, a podcast run by student journalists offering teenagers perspectives on the latest happenings. We hope to provide authentic conversations that allow a quick listen wherever you are. Welcome, and as always, I'm your host, London Sinclair. Today we are discussing the three C's, colonialism, capitalism, and carbon emissions, and how each of them are contributing to the fourth C, the climate crisis. If this were a game of categories, I would be 100% crushing it with my alliteration, but moving on, the coronavirus pandemic has changed our socioeconomic and political environments, presenting an opportunity for reflection and action. Today, we have a very special guest, Bess Frierson, who has done exactly that. Hi, I'm Bess. I am a junior at Archer. And yeah, <laughs> that's, that's my whole intro. Thank you, Bess, for coming on here today. I'm so excited to talk with you. And Thank I know you we're here to discuss. Of course. I know we're here to discuss the, you know, the three C's, colonialism, capitalism, carbon emissions. And I wanted to start off by asking you, what is biodiversity and how do you define biodiversity? Yeah, um, so biodiversity quite literally is just the diversity of species in our environment. So that can be in a broad sense, such as, you know, there's different food groups, there's grains, there's potatoes, there's celery, there's lettuce, those are all different species. But then within each family, there's a lot of different species. So within the potato family, there are hundreds of different types of potatoes and hundreds of thousands of different genetic variations um, within those potatoes. And so that, that's what biodiversity is and pretty face value definition of it. However, I, I'm here to talk about it in relation to agriculture and small scale farming. Uh, and usually when, when used in relation to agriculture, biodiversity is talked about as a practice or I definitely see it as a practice because it's not the norm right now. Right now, the norm is monoculture, which, as you can probably guess from the sound of it, is the opposite of biodiversity. It's it's growing one thing and growing a lot of it. So it's a lack of biodiversity. And so when you hear biodiversity in relation to farming, usually it's talking about someone who is actively cultivating different strains and species and genetic variations of food and someone who's creating a closed loop ecosystem. So that's that's the literal definition of biodiversity and more how I use it, uh, because I talk about it more as a practice, I think, in relation to how you run your garden or your farm or whatever space you're cultivating. Your definition sees biodiversity as an action word, which I find so interesting. Did you develop this opinion? Did someone share an opinion with you? Or is it, do you feel like it's, a, I guess, a widespread idea? Yeah, I, as I was reading up and as I was learning and kind of getting into this topic, I definitely saw it used as a practice a lot. So the practice of biodiversity, the practice of having a diverse garden and the practice of building a, a farm that's closed loop and sustainable. So I, I just I heard it a lot in relation to that practice because I, I'm not really I haven't really explored biodiversity outside of agriculture. So I've only really heard about biodiversity in relation to the practice of it in farming. So I think that's how I came to see it as an action. Uh, mm -hmm. What currently poses a threat to biodiversity 
and how can you encourage listeners to protect and practice biodiversity? This one's fun. <laughs> uh, well, as I said before, monoculture. Monoculture is pretty typical farming practice right now, which is one farm will fill 100 acres with just corn, one type of sweet corn. And monoculture is the reason when you go into the grocery store, every single apple looks exactly the same. Uh, but that's not the case in nature. In fact, there's almost, I think it's like 20,000 different varieties of apples that we've categorized. Wow. So, I, yeah, so I'm not sure if that's the exact number, but there's a lot of genetic variation because every apple seed produces a different apple. It's never the same. But what these farmers do and what these big corporations do is they propagate and they just take this one seed, this one variation of apple, and they just repeat it over and over and over and over. And so that's that's the main threat to biodiversity is capitalism <laughs> um, and capitalism is su at such a scale that we grow these cash crops as a, not as a nation, but not we. <laughs> Sorry, let me roll back. Here. <laughs> these corporations um, are growing to make money rather than to sustain themselves in their communities. And if you're if you're growing to sustain yourself in your community, you can't only grow corn. That's not practical. It's not logical. So. This capitalist idea of, I'll talk about this in relation to colonialism too, but it's um, this idea of making goods and then exporting them. I think that's the biggest threat because if it, if you just are running a farm to feed yourself, you have to grow biodiversely. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on, uh, on how you see colonialism and capitalism as a proponent of monoculture? Sorry. Can I go back? I messed up that 20,000 statistic. It's 7,000. 2,000 are grown in the United States. Yeah, but okay. So a good example of this is when you walk into the grocery store and you look at the towers of apples, they're all exactly the same. When in reality, every apple seed produces a different offspring. No two apple trees are the same unless you specifically propagate them to be so. Even if you self-pollinate, the genes still get all mixed up and you end up with a completely different apple. So in reality, there are about 7,500 apple varieties in the world, but we only see about five in our grocery stores. And that is a product of monoculture. So that's monoculture at work when you see that. That's that's what monoculture does. It, it limits a species down to whatever's the most appealing to a consumer. You asked about capitalism and colonialism in relation to monoculture. I'm going to start with colonialism. The reason I think of colonialism as such a propellant for monoculture is because, with obviously with some exceptions, actually with a lot of exceptions, but when you look back at our world history, you see that colonialism is kind of the first time well, first of all, it's the start of globalization, right? Mm -hmm. And second of all, it's the first time we see large migrations of people moving to make a profit, but not just to set up a life. You know, in the past, people moved to a town with richer resources to set up a shop or to start a mine. But in this case, people are specifically going out of the country and starting usually a farm, maybe a mine, some sort of profit-based venture, and they don't have to actually live there or deal with the consequences. Mm -hmm. All the profits are going back to their country, most of them. Of course, some people obviously settled during colonialism, but the idea of colonies was to extract and exploit 
resources from the environment of the colony and make money for usually the European countries or the other countries that had sent people there. So they don't have to deal with the repercussions of whatever environmental damage they do. Um, And obviously this is extremely harmful to native people and anyone who's already living there uh, and the animals living there. So this system's called, uh, you probably heard this in history, but cash crops, which are crops that are grown for money. You have these large interests, sorry, common instances of colonies that became so focused on building an industry around one crop and their economy became so central to one crop that there was famine among the native people and among the workers because many of these workers are brought in to work on these farms and you know either by force or by choice they give up their they had to give up their small farms and their community farms to work for these large farms providing goods for other countries and so all that money gets funneled out and all those resources are being funneled out and there's this famine because they no longer are working to provide for themselves they're unfortunately they've been forced to work to provide for others and so um, so that when they're no longer growing their own food or when you have these big farms across the sea, the people there aren't invested in the health of the land or the natives. So right. it doesn't matter what happens to the environment. If you're trying to make money, monoculture is the most efficient way. It's much more efficient to grow 100 acres of tobacco than to grow some carrots and some cabbage and some cotton that's just that's more time consuming it requires more labor more knowledge and it's ultimately probably not going to make as much money because you're not mass producing but for all these people who are migrating if they were there temporarily to make a fortune or even if they were just there to make some money and send it back to their family they weren't invested in the communities which they had come to they weren't invested in making a life there and feeding themselves so they could produce large amounts of the same crop. Right. I remember you saying, you know, capitalism has kind of internalized an instinct as humans to do one thing and to do it very well. And this internalization of that ideology is what's continuing to power monoculture. Right. And Adam Smith has this idea, you know, as the founder of capitalism, he wrote some sort of book. I that's probably I that probably doesn't give him enough credit. Anyways, Adam Smith he said um, he has this idea that that's more efficient. That if you can make more of a profit from producing a hundred acres of tobacco, and I can produce all the carrots, that's more efficient, right? And I would argue that that's actually maybe for making money, but long term it's not sustainable, and long term it also it's going to deplete the soil. Because you can't grow the same crop over and over and over again. Because that's that's not how nutrients work, you know, in the same soil. And so I would argue that it doesn't make for more productivity. In fact, it just makes, it doesn't make for better products. It just makes for cheaper products. Um, and so monoculture is the cheapest way to produce a lot mm-hmm. of different things. So the corporations really don't care. You know, they don't, I mean, maybe they do, but but it doesn't seem like they do. It's not like they're... There's no real benefit behind monoculture except the profit. Mm -hmm. 
You mentioned soil a second ago. Can you elaborate on that concept of growing soil and producing nutrient-dense soil in relation to anything uh, in relation to biodiversity, in relation to composting? Yes. You want to take. Yeah. <laughs> I am, have been reading How to Grow More Vegetables, the seventh edition. I highly recommend. Uh, everything you need to know is in there. Pretty simply laid out. I think. I think the most important thing uh, that most people don't know about soil is that soil is not just dirt. (laughs) Soil, (laughs) which is contradicting, but like real good soil, dense soil is a combination of dirt, clay, nutrients, and most importantly, microbiotic life. So microbiotic life are these tiny little animals and fungi and very small organisms within the soil. And it's a whole ecosystem in the soil, in the dirt, right? And there are some larger ones we see, like worms. And then there are smaller things, things so small that you can barely see with like a microscope. So it's just this massive underground ecosystem of organisms all supporting one another and eating one another and pooping. And that creates for a lot of nutrients. Mm -hmm. So when you want to grow soil, it's important to recognize that soil is beyond just rocks and sand. There's a lot going on in soil. And if you are repeatedly digging up the same patch of soil to plant, let me give an example. I'm going to try and explain this. So if you have a crop that's really, really needs nitrogen, has very high nitrogen needs, right? And you're planting it repeatedly in the same soil what's going to happen is the nitrogen is not going back into the soil. So the nitrogen is just going to become depleted and that's disrupting the whole ecosystem within the soil. So as you use soil, you have to be putting it back. You have to be putting the nutrients back. And, you know, a lot of big companies think it's kind of like easy way out, simple solution, right? Oh, it's, there's not enough nitrogen, nitrogen, pour some in, but they're not really looking at the broader picture of, when, you, when you're pouring nitrogen into your own soil, not only can it be disruptive and not only is it impossible to measure and like know how much your soil needs, it also, you're taking that nitrogen from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So in order to be fully sustainable, we, and this book explains it, there's this idea that we need to grow our soil in order to grow plants. So we need to cultivate life within our soil. And that, that includes um, double digging, which it's a process of trying to mix the soil without damaging the structure or disrupting what's in the soil uh, through raised bed farming. That is extremely important. I would say if you have your own garden, raised bed is always the way to go. It's, it allows the plants room to take in nutrients and for their roots to set, and it allows there to be air pockets and water and life within the soil. Uh, what does raised bed mean? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's good. It means like um, it means what it sounds like. You know, you have if you have a garden bed, raised bed means it's the best way to describe it. It's like fluffy. You know, it's taller than the soil around it because you've churned it up and it's it, it basically it's just a mound. Gardening on mounds, <laughs> I guess, um, would be the best way to describe it. Um, just looser soil that isn't getting compacted and isn't getting stepped on, so that there's room for life to flourish within it. Right. And then the last thing, as you said, is compost. And compost, I do want to dispel a myth about compost. 
some people are really hardcore composters and I so respect that. I think that's so cool. I wish I was like that. I don't have the space and I have a lot of raccoons in my alleyway. So it's not like I can just take every scrap of food that I have and throw it in a pile outside because we have, once again, we have raccoons, right? So, <laughs> and it'll bring a lot of raccoons to our house and I'm, I don't, I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> so what I do is I have a very, I have a very small compost pile and it's just every week when I'm cleaning out my garden or raking the leaves, I just throw them on that pile. It's, it doesn't have to be as complex as you don't have to be 100% composting everything you eat and you don't have to be. In fact, if you can compost anything, that's great. Things like twigs, leaves, that stuff is great compost. That's actually makes up the majority of most people's compost um, in biodynamic and biodiverse farms. Even those farms use a lot of leaves and twigs and just natural materials from the ground. Um, and so if you can compost anything like that, it won't attract varmints. It doesn't take up much space and it'll be great for your garden. Uh, so compost is huge. If you are looking for some form of fertilizer or something to just enrich in your soil, I would say if you can do compost or sometimes organic fertilizer or manure, something really good too is worm casings because worm casings is literally just worm poop and it's <laughs> super organic. It's super healthy for the soil and it's not disruptive because I mean worm poop is a part of the soil <laughs> how do you compost do you use a bin or what do you recommend people listening to start composting it's just in a pile <laughs> it's not very organized it's just in a pile I love that <laughs> I'm not sure if you self-identify as a mini garden farmer do you mind if I <laughs> refer to you as that oh oh my god I'd be honored okay <laughs> fabulous Best Frierson and the mini garden farmer. I support. That's How all I want to do. Yeah, right. Life goals achieved. How can you relate your experiences a little bit more as a mini garden farmer to some of these larger scale issues we've been talking about? Yeah, um, in a lot of ways. Something that actually happened to me two weeks ago, very recently, I had a patch of turnips and radishes. And I was growing the turnips for my mom because she really likes turnips. God knows why. Mm -hmm. And sorry, I'm a turnip hater, but see, that's that's biodiversity, right? I'm cultivating it even if I don't like it because it's different and it's new and it works for someone. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But uh, yeah, so I have these turnips and these radishes and I had one squirrel, which is probably now a very full squirrel that ate all 20 of my turnips. All of them like completely to the ground. And I, I was really unfortunate. Um, and that, that was a moment where I definitely understood the struggle of monoculture farming, right? Because if I hadn't had radishes there, and they didn't like the radishes for some reason, don't know why, but they didn't. But if I hadn't had radishes growing there too, if I was surviving solely on the profits made from my turnips, what, what would I do? There's nothing else left to do except use pesticides, put up big fences, shoot the squirrel, you know, like you, if that's all you have, if when you're, monoculture makes things less adaptable and less resistant, because if all I had was turnips and a squirrel was eating my turnips, that squirrel could not go on. That squirrel could not live because it's eating my entire profit. So it was kind of this, so for me, that moment was kind of a testament to like how important it is to have like different 
types of plants and different crops in your garden and your farm because that's a really small scale example of like what what they talk about larger scale which is that these really large monoculture farms will use a lot of really toxic pesticides insecticides too there's this instance of a farm and it's breeding corn to find the most productive variety of corn right a company will breed strain of corn It'll breed this species to be resistant to a certain pesticide. So let's say pesticide X, right? The species of corn that they breed is resistant to pesticide X, which would kill any other corn because it's extremely toxic and it seeps into the soil. Mm -hmm. And then they put that on the market and farmers start growing this corn and, you know, it's, it's getting eaten. So the company puts on the market pesticide X. And so the corn is basically useless without that pesticide because it'll get eaten. And the pesticide doesn't work for any other corn because it kills it. So that's an example of a company profiting a lot off of monoculture because then the, the farmer has to buy the same corn again and again and again. So that, that's an example of... So the, the point of that story is that businesses will capitalize off of the fact that if you're only growing one thing, you're going to need to kill the pests. Because mm -hmm. like my squirrel issue, if I was only growing turnips, I would need to kill the squirrel. Mm -hmm. So if someone said, here's a turnip that's resistant to pesticides and here's a pesticide that will kill your squirrel, I say, dope. Like, great. Give it to me. Like, I want that, you know? So that, that's the alternative, which is when you're, when you're only growing one thing, it can be really harmful. Um, another example of this is potatoes and I love potatoes. I have a weird obsession with growing potatoes in Latin America. Latin America is often referred to not often <laughs> often referred to by anyone who gives a anyone who cares about this stuff. Yeah, not often, but often referred to by like anyone who actually talks about potatoes as often as as I do. But Latin America is called the center of potato biodiversity. And the reason for this is because in some places in Latin America, they would cultivate up to a thousand different types of potatoes at once. So they would have a thousand different species, right? Small ones, big ones, purple ones, blue ones, every possible potato you could imagine. So different than, you know, like the three that you get from the grocery store. So when a disease or a fungi or a mold would start affecting their crops, it wouldn't really matter. Because if a certain fungi has adapted to wipe out all of their tiny potatoes. You know, that's not how that works, but I'm just using an example. And all of their red potatoes, they would be fine as a culture and as a community because they're also growing a lot of blue and yellow potatoes and a lot of big potatoes. On the other hand, something like the Irish potato famine. The reason that was such widespread disaster was because the entire Irish economy was based on a potato called the Irish lumber. So they were all cultivating this one potato because, hey, it's easy to grow, it's fast, and it'll make a lot of money because I can sell it for a lot of money because it's easy to grow, right? And then a fast-spreading disease that affects Irish lumpers killed them all off. And there was nothing left because their whole economy and their whole, honestly, their whole food system was based on this one species of potato. Whereas in South America, it's not a huge issue because they have many types. That's just another super interesting example that I think the contrast between those two events and the, those two 
experiences is so interesting. And I think it's a huge testament to the power of diversity within nature and within our gardens. And then the other thing, the other story I have about my own garden, (laughs) I had some bean seeds that I bought from the store. This was when I was first starting out. I wasn't buying from organic farmers or uh, I wasn't buying open pollinated, which just means it's, it's the difference between a hybrid and an open pollinated seed is a hybrid is basically what you see at the grocery store. A hybrid is something that's specifically been bred to be robust and attractive looking and easy to sell. Whereas an open pollinated seed is just a variation that happened because it just means that the bees pollinated it. It just got pollinated. You know, it just happened. So they can't really control what the result will be. And that's another thing. If you're, if you're working in your own garden, I would say, or if you're thinking about starting a garden, open pollinated seeds or heirloom seeds, which are just seeds that have been passed down from generation to generation, are definitely the way to go. Um, because they're a huge, huge help in preserving genetic diversity. So I, I, I bought some hybrid seeds. And... I produced an incredible amount of beans, more beans than I've ever gotten from one pan. We had green beans almost every night last summer. And I was thinking like, wow, like what is up with these beans? And so I, I, I mean, these in, incredibly robust and beautiful, long, tasty beans. And I was like, okay, I have to plant more of these. So I saved the seeds and I planted them this year and I got two. <laughs> and the reason for that is that hybrid seeds, first of all, the offspring won't be the same. Even if it did grow beans, they wouldn't necessarily taste the same or look the same. But hybrids are often bred specifically to not come true the second time you use their seeds. So big companies will breed a certain seed to not be able to reproduce so that I can't just keep planting seeds. I have to go back to the company and buy more of the seeds if I want them. Um, So that's another just like, Something really small that I observed in my garden, but that was actually, but something that's actually at a large scale, really impactful and really harmful to biodiversity because without heirlooms and open pollinated seeds, our biodiversity disappears. I must say that I am thoroughly enjoying all of your information and personal anecdotes. I feel like I'm really grasping this concept so much more when you back it up with your experiences in your own garden. And with that, I think my next question is you've been talking about pesticides and GMOs, and I want to know how our technological landscape is contributing and supporting the use of these pesticides. I think of technology just as an enabler in a lot of ways, right? So you think about a gun. Would we still go to war and kill each other if we didn't have guns? Probably. Would we do it as easily? No, (laughs) you know? Um... So the same thing with technology. As technology advances, you have pesticides, you have GMOs, which is genetically modified organisms. So those are vegetables that have been genetically modified to be a certain way. And it enables monoculture because, you know, back in the day, whatever day we're talking about, if you were only growing corn and a bunch of beetles decided to attack your corn, sucks, you know, like you're broke. So you can't do that. Whereas nowadays, if a bunch of beetles attack your corn, you have the ability to spray them with poison. That was never an option before. Additionally, with GMOs, you have the ability to grow pest-resistant corn. 
it's not necessarily causing these issues, but it's definitely enabling them because we have these technologies that we, and I think this is true of a lot of aspects of human cultures, that we haven't figured out how to responsibly use these things yet. Mm-hmm. So we're just using them wherever they suit us. And as you can see, pretty much everywhere, that can be really damaging to the environment and to our health. If you ask me, I think technology just enables us to participate in monoculture more successfully. Something that's interesting about growing soil, too, is that growing soil can also mean revitalizing soil uh, because you know, our soil has become so damaged. Um, actually, I think topsoil, when I say topsoil, is about the first foot or two of soil. It's the soil we use to grow vegetables. And it's estimated that we only have in the United States about 40 to 80 years of topsoil left before it will be depleted completely of nutrients and you'll be unable to grow on it. Um, And that's due to pesticides, toxins, environmental factors like cities and urbanization and pollution and keyword monoculture. Let's see how many times I can say that in one podcast. And so there are certain plants that can be used to actually revive soil. So there are some plants, for instance, just like corn needs a lot of nitrogen, there's a fern. It's native to Asia and South Africa, and it it soaks up heavy metals. Hmm. So this plant can be used to pull lead, arsenic, uh, factory runoff out of the soil, because when you plant it, it soaks up those heavy metals and those really toxic materials, and it uses them. And um, that plant specifically, a story about that plant is hundreds of years ago, when the Atlantic slave trade was still prominent, some slaves being taken over from Africa before they were captured or taken when their village seemed like it was going to get captured or on the way to being transported to America or wherever they were going, they would braid seeds into their hair as a insurance policy, as a hope for future generations to help sustain them and feed their children's children and their children's children's children, you know? I mean, that's a really incredible story. When I I heard that on a podcast, actually, and I was just really moved because the faith they must have had to protect those seeds for their great-grandchildren. We have to have that faith now. We have to have faith that our generations, our future generations, will benefit from us preserving biodiversity and us preserving the environment. And so what I'm talking about is that one of those seeds that was brought over, some examples, I think that's how okra got to the United States. That's also how uh, a certain fern got to the United States. I'm I'm not sure the name of it, but it's the fern that sucks up heavy metals. Because globalization is not the enemy, right? It's just I've talked about it in a negative way, but we have these tools from, we have plants from different places. We have seeds from our great grandparents and seeds from other cultures and seeds from Africa and seeds from Asia. We have all these resources at our disposal to nourish our soil. And I think it's really important that we use them. I mean, when they, when they braided those seeds into their hair, they might not have known they were storing a fern that, I don't think they knew that they were storing a fern that would suck up heavy metals. However, there's people who have been using it in their communities to take lead poisoning out of the soil. And that, you know, that's what that's intended for, to do good later on for future generations. And I think that's super important. Thinking about that story you just shared, not only is it so interesting, but it's inspiring. As a generation that's 
on the forefront of climate change efforts, I feel like we need to be taking notes. <laughs> yeah, take notes. <laughs> yeah, excuse oh, absolutely. me. Absolutely. People in the most dire of situations, people losing their homes, and they were looking out for future generations. I think that's incredible. You know, I, I often wonder where our our sense of community has gone. At one point, being a community leader was a job and and participating in your community, being even a good neighbor was was the norm. And that's just depleted. And I feel like because that's no longer such a prominent part of our culture, there's less of a motivation to do things for others. Well, I think that might be a benefit of this pandemic, right? We all kind of know each other a bit better. Yeah. It's definitely brought out the community in people. I mean, I see students at Archer more invested in their community and mm-hmm. really standing up to be kind and make space for each other. And I think that's pretty incredible. I think hard times bring people together. I completely agree. I think students, as well as many others, are stepping up and filling the voids in their communities. And I think that you're completely right about COVID as well. It has reinstated this sense of agency. And and this time has given people the opportunity to educate them themselves. And this even resonates with you. I feel that listening to your gardening endeavors and how knowledgeable you are in the subject, clearly you have not only educated yourself, but you've also taken action. And that's so admirable. I wouldn't go so far to say that this has been a benefit of COVID-19, but for lack of a better word, benefit or maybe non-negative byproduct is, yeah. is the better yeah, word. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I actually do have something interesting that to hmm. say about COVID-19 in relation to biodiversity. Mm-hmm. This is super, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I, You, in our first conversation, asked me, what has the effect been on covid and I was like, oh, God, I don't know how to answer that. Why would I know that? <laughs> you know, because I haven't read a ton of recent stuff. I'm mostly reading books. So, um, so I, I, you know, I, I looked into that and I was like, I went down this rabbit hole and I, I actually, I found this really interesting theory and it's called the dilution theory. And it's actually pretty widespread among people who are studying uh, agriculture and environment. It's the idea that in the past century, there have been far more uh, parasites and zoolic diseases among humans, diseases that we get from animals. And so why? Why are we having more viruses? Like, why is there so many different strains of illness? And something really interesting is that there's this theory that the decrease in biodiversity and the destruction of habitats actually makes us more susceptible to disease. For a couple of reasons. First of all, the deeper you go into a habitat to take more land, the more exposure you're going to get. So parts of the rainforest that had previously never been really commercially accessed are being chopped down. And that land is being worked on. So it's you, you don't really know what you're being exposed to. And additionally, in an unbalanced ecosystem, certain species will thrive. So... In unbalanced ecosystems, rodents tend to do really well. Um, They're super adaptable. 
And unfortunately, rodents carry a lot of diseases that can be passed on to humans. Additionally, you know, if you're, if there's this really complex ecosystem and a bunch of humans enter it, a lot of things are going to die off. And guess what's going to do well? It's going to be the thing that can feed off of human life. So perhaps a fungus or a disease or a tapeworm. Uh, because and those things do well when humans enter the environment and when we disrupt the environment because they're the only things that can survive. Mm-hmm. And I, it's there's a lot of studies done it and a lot of them have found different you know different magnitudes but uh, you know there's almost 200 studies that have been done with different methods that have found the impact of a lack of biodiversity increasing the possibility for disease and. Um, the, the possibility of catching that disease because maybe the disease was there, but if we'd never gone into that environment, it's unlikely would have, we would have ever encountered it. Um, and as humans and nature, be, as we like encroach upon more and more environments, we're being exposed to more things. Um, and with globalization, it's no longer a local problem. So that that's a potential theory for the spike in just viruses and different strains of colds and flus and deadly diseases. And so I think it's, um, I think it's really interesting. So when you asked, well, what's the effect of COVID-19 on, on biodiversity? I'm not hundred percent sure, but there could definitely potentially be an effect of biodiversity on COVID-19, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, COVID-19 came from an animal that from a meat market and a meat market that's selling wildlife and encroaching upon a natural habitat and disrupting an ecosystem for profit. I don't want to say that everything else you've said during this episode has not been interesting, but that is wildly interesting. (laughs) That, That took this episode to a whole new level, and I am just so curious, and I'd love to get some of those resources that you that you found while doing your research and recommend them for everyone listening to, to do their own research and to look into more because I think that is absolutely fascinating in a real full circle moment. Wow. I know, it's really crazy. I was looking into it and I was like, whoa! Yeah, and I, I have to say I'm almost inclined to end this episode on the highest of high notes because that is just... I don't know what information could possibly top the dilution theory, but I don't want to leave our listeners hanging. So share the wealth. Do you have any parting tips or tricks to starting your own mini garden? Yes. Uh, The first thing I will say is just start, especially Mm -hmm. if you're struggling with uh, isolation or depression or anxiety about the world right now or just in general. It's so meditative and it's so good for your health. It's exercise. It's fresh air. It's fresh food. It's basically everything good you could do for yourself. So uh, just as an act of self-care, you should do it. But then specifically talking about biodiversity, I think just by making a garden, having like a small little garden in your backyard, you're most likely going to be doing a biodiverse garden because, you know, once again, you're, you're providing for yourself. You're not making a profit. You're providing food for yourself and your happiness and your community. So just making a garden. And I would say uh, when you're going to make a garden, I'm a huge fan of immersive gardening, so (laughs) not everyone is down with that, but, you know, my kind of perspective is if there's light, something can be grown. If you have anywhere, even if you, even if you live in an apartment, if you have windows, you can have a garden. If you have a balcony, you can have a garden. If you have 
a front porch, you can have a garden. Uh, you can look into container gardening if you have a small space at home. Uh, or vertical gardening uh, is also really helpful if you don't have a lot of space. If you happen to have a yard or a front yard, truly any amount of space that you're allowed to have, identify a space that gets light. Second of all, I would kind of take note of potential problems or make a list of potential problems you might have. Uh, you know, For me, it's pests. Uh, pests, shade, uh, my garden doesn't get enough sun during the day, and my soil is really rocky. So you just make a list of those problems so that you can look into the best way to handle them so you can kind of anticipate what's coming. Because if you just start planting, you know, you're going to, a squirrel's going to eat it all and you're going to be really sad and that sucks. <laughs> so um, plan ahead. Yeah, that's about it. Just be invested and excited about it and learn and, oh, and plant heirloom or open pollinated seeds. I know I said that, but it's really, really important for biodiversity. Um, and but so if you want to help preserve biodiversity or biodynamic farming, all it takes is a pot. You know, you can grow two radishes at home and that's biodiversity because you're growing it for yourself. That's, and if, even if, even better, if you grow two different types of radishes. So I, I say just start, start somewhere. Um, don't get discouraged and have fun with it. And there are a lot of really cool sites like the Seed Savers Exchange has a bunch of different heirlooms and breeds from farmers across the country who are also practicing biodiversity. I, I get all my seeds from there. And it's just regular people who are making seeds and preserving diversity because they enjoy it. And you can find some of the coolest stuff in there. Like yesterday, I found some purple potatoes that have yellow polka dots. Like that's so cool. I'm so excited. <laughs> and they're like teardrop shaped. I ordered them. I'm like, yes, I'm so excited. Um, and you'd never find that in a grocery store. Or honestly, you'd never find that on a commercial seed site. So really just like exploring the niche of it and just getting into it. And another book I highly recommend, especially in terms of biodiversity, is uh, The Botany of Desire. It taught me a lot about biodiversity, uh, not explicitly, but it's it's it definitely goes into that. And it's an incredible book. So even if you're not into gardening, great read, super interesting, highly recommend. Uh, if you are, definitely read it. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's all my advice. Uh, my main advice is just do it. Just just plant something, something that makes you happy. If you liked the sound of this episode, subscribe to The Scoop Podcast. It's free. Starting this school year, we'll be chatting with you and giving the daily scoop on life at Archer. If you're new to all things podcasts and need more info on how to listen, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and the Oracle website, archeroracle.org. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay strong. See you next time.